All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about the situation in the Middle East. And uh, let's, let's start things off talking about the escalation outside of uh, the war in uh, Israel and in Gaza because we had another U.S. airstrike in uh, Syria. This one, uh, this airstrike claimed to have uh, targeted uh, Iranian militia who were operating, allegedly operating out of, out of Syria and hitting the, uh, the U.S. base, the illegal U.S. base in Syria. So uh, that, that was what the Pentagon said. But um, uh, it, it seems like uh, these, these exchanges, these skirmishes between the United States and these various forces, militias in, uh, in Iraq and in Syria are, are becoming more um, commonplace. And uh, I think that's, that's a very, very bad sign given all the rhetoric that we've heard from the Biden White House about if you if you hit any of our U.S. Uh, uh, resources, uh, military bases, assets in the region, well, then we're going to we're going to um, inflict a heavy price on you. And they're speaking to Iran as they say this, this, these these uh, these statements. So uh, what's what are your thoughts on on the escalation that's happening outside of, uh, of the war in Israel? And then we'll probably get back get to the war in Israel as well. Well, I think the first thing to say is that in, in, in geopolitical terms, in global terms, it's obviously the battle in Gaza that is getting the most attention, and it's understandable because we see the pictures every day. There's a humanitarian disaster there. This is a politically fraught subject. But I would actually suggest that, in fact, it's these fights, these battles that are raging off behind the curtain, if you like, between these militias and the United States, which are clearly intensifying, that actually is the more dangerous and the more worrying, uh, um, the more worrying event. And you're absolutely correct. The, the, all the indications are that the fighting between these militias and the United States is intensifying. The US, as you rightly said, has just launched another big airstrike on um, a sheer, what, what it claims is a militia base. There's now lots of pictures, if you really you know, want to search for them, of rocket attacks and missile attacks on American bases in Syria, especially. And you're absolutely correct to say that these bases should not be in Syria. They've not been authorised by the Security Council in uh, New York, in the UN Security Council. They've not been agreed to by the Syrian government. No political agency that has uh, sovereignty over Syria has authorised the presence of these bases. So these bases are illegally present in Syria, and they're now becoming um, a bone of contention. They're becoming sites of actual battles, and the United States is retaliating by launching airstrikes in Syria, which again are illegal. I mean, they're part of the United States is present illegally in Syria, and these Syrian these airstrikes it's launching in Syria are therefore, by extension, illegal as well. But the fighting, as you correctly say, is intensifying. And I saw a really troubling comment in one of Larry Johnson's pieces um, on Sonar 21, in which he said that somebody that he knows, 
who is well you know informed about these things and here by the way i should say that i take this report very seriously i am sure it is true anyway he says that ho hospitals military hospitals us military hospitals are quietly filling with us soldiers who have been wounded in this fighting and that the fighting clearly is taking place at a much greater level of intensity than the administration wants people to know. So already we can see fighting is taking place between the United States and Iran's allies. The US calls them proxies in uh, the Middle East. The United States, as you absolutely correctly say, is issuing further warnings against Iran the latest statement that was issued by the US government uh, straightforwardly uh, said you know that Iran is um, responsible for these attacks it warned Iran to uh, take gate tighter control over its proxies and it made it clear again that the United States stands ready to retaliate and we've discussed in the past how there are people in the United States who are aching for an outright attack on Iran. And we see more and more military assets being deployed to the Middle East, which look to be the kind of assets you would want if you were considering a military strike on Iran. So we've now had confirmed reports about the deployment of an Ohio-class nuclear submarine capable of launching 100 Tomahawk cruise missiles. We know about this deployment because it had to transit through the Suez Canal. So it was visible as it transited through the Suez Canal. It is now apparently in the Red Sea. So it is moving into position where it would be capable of launching a strike upon Iran. And this is a very potent warship indeed, not one that you deploy, you know, um, casually. And by the way, the United States has only four submarines, apparently, of this type. And we've also seen more pictures now of A-10 war Warthog um, ground attack aircraft being deployed. And they've been deployed with all kinds of um, weapons, including apparently uh, missiles and bombs that you would use to attack bunkers. And again, the suggestion is that they would be deployed against presumably Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hezbollah being seen by the United States as Iran's ally, with, of course, if there's a strike on Iran, the worry the United States would have is that Hezbollah would react. So we can see that all the pieces are being moved into place preparatory for some kind of a conflict between the United States and Iran. Now, the United States continues to insist, the U.S. government continues to insist that that is not its plan. There is, across the Arab world, a marked objection, hostility to this, when the United States has floated this idea with the Arab states, even with its traditional allies. They've all made it clear that they don't want to see this happen. But the, what the United States, what the Biden administration is saying is not consistent with what it is doing. It's moving more assets, military assets of this nature, towards Iran. 
against a background of intensifying fighting. And of course, the Iranians are seeing all of this, and one must assume that they're taking countermeasures. Yes, I imagine the only thing that the, the United States is waiting on, or at least this is how it looks, is that they're, they're just waiting for all the, the military assets to, to, to get into place. Yes. And then well, I imagine we, we, could be, we could be heading into a situation where there's another attack on a U.S. base in Iraq or Syria, and that would be the trigger to, to set everything off. We, we are dangerously close to that point, and we're getting ever closer to that point. Let me say this again. Even if a political decision to attack Iran has not yet been made, even if you know there's argument and dissension about this within the administration, which there may be, even if we assume that someone like, let's say, Blinken is opposed to this, which he might be. I mean, he's been going around the Middle East. He's been getting... Uh, door slammed in his face there. He probably has a better sense of the strength of Arab opinion than other people in Washington do. The mere presence of these military assets in the Middle East, poised to attack Iran, means that the temptation to use them to attack Iran is going to grow. And the pressure therefore, from the people who have always wanted to attack Iran, is going to increase also. And it's going to increase even more as the situation in um, Gaza itself looks increasingly as if it is becoming bogged down. So why doesn't Iran, if, if you are to believe what, what the US is saying and these groups are, are run by Iran. They're controlled by uh, by the Iran state. Why doesn't Iran just tell these groups, "Look, um, we understand that um, you want to attack these these U.S. bases, which illegally occupy uh, Syria and uh, that are present in Iraq." But for the time being, because things are so tense, don't don't launch any attacks on these. Um, illegal U.S. bases. I think that is exactly. Or, or maybe what they don't. Right. Or maybe they don't control. Or maybe they don't control yeah. these militias. I mean, maybe, yeah, once again, yeah, if yeah. we are to believe what the U.S. is saying, that's why I'm asking. That's why I said, if yeah. we are to believe what the U.S. is saying, yeah. I, I, well, I think you, 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 to a great extent, answered the question because, of course, the U.S. and Israel act as if these uh, militias are pure Iranian proxies, that the U Iranian intelligence agencies, the R Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, um, controls, has tight control over these, um, over these militias. It's important to remember, however, that they are militias. They are not part of any regular army. That is also true, by the way, of Hezbollah itself. And it is a fundamental misconception to think that these militias have the same kind of discipline that, say, a irregular, irregular military force has. And I am I have no doubt at all that the Iranian government does not is not looking for the moment for a war with the United States. And they've been sending their people to Beirut, to uh, Baghdad, to uh, eastern Syria. They've been talking with these militia people. They're, all the evidence is that this is indeed what they're doing. And they're telling them, 
cool down, keep disciplined, don't begin this fight. And um, I, we had that speech last weekend, on Saturday last weekend, from Hassan Lazrala, who is the um, head of the Lebanese Hezbollah, by far the most powerful. And he said, look, you know, Iran wasn't involved in what happened on the 7th of October and wasn't consulted. We weren't uh, consulted and we weren't involved. We are not looking to fight. We're trying, in other words, to exert discipline on his own fighters and on his own people. But of course, discipline like that is difficult to maintain. And when um, fighting between militias in this very tense and fraught international atmosphere in the Middle East begins. It, it may be very, very difficult for Iran itself to control its own allies and to exert the kind of discipline over them that the United States is demanding that it should. There is another factor, which is, of course, Iran itself, as we also know, is not a political monolith. I get the sense that, you know, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is not looking for a conflict with the United States. Uh, the I I Iranian government, led by Ebrahim Raisi, is not looking for a conflict with the United States. But that doesn't mean that everybody in Iran, within the leadership and political structures, might not, might, you know, might share those views, might necessarily shares those views. There may be some people, you know, in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, for example, that, you know, are also furious about what's going on in Gaza, um, um, furious about this build-up by U.S. forces, still burning to re avenge the assassination some years ago of their chief, Sol uh, you know, General Soleimani, and they might actually be looking for a fight with the United States. So, you know, the Iranian government, you know, itself may want to avoid a war, but that doesn't mean it is able to control the situation. Right. So the, the best thing they can do is, is prepare. Yeah. yeah. I'm and I'm sure that's what they're doing. And, of course, the trouble is... You know, it works on the other side. Obviously, Iran doesn't have the scale of military assets that the United States does. But, of course, the more they prepare, the more, again, the uh, risk of escalation increases because, you know, the U.S. will see all these forces. They'll see the missiles being moved to their bases. We know that this is happening. They will see all of those steps being taken and that will increase pressure in Washington from people there. They will say, look, the Iranians are taking all of these steps. That means that ha they have some aggressive intention. and They're also attacking our people across the Middle East. So let's retaliate and let's retaliate hard before the Iranians get their blowing. So well, it's that's, that's... an incredibly dangerous situation. And one which, um, you know, I, I think, the Iranian government does have some control over it. But, you know, within Washington at the moment, I'm not sure that anybody does. And that's an even more dangerous situation that, than everything else we've been talking about. Well, the neocons in, in uh, the U.S. are definitely saying uh, strike first. Uh, Tim Scott in the, uh, in the debates the other day 
uh, the GOP debates. I think he said, uh, "Cut off uh, the, the the snake of of cut off the head of the snake," meaning Iran, and strike first. Now that was what uh, Tim Scott said. So I mean, the, the neocon thinking right now is is dominated by this this strike first at Iran um, mentality. Any, anyway, uh, okay. So that's that's the the World War Three angle. Uh, let's talk about what's happening. Uh, in the war in uh, in Gaza in uh, Israel, well, you, uh, mean, what's it, what's happening there? It, I mean, it's essential to understand that these two things are connected with each other. I mean, the right the reason people like Tim Scott, and of course he's he's Republican, but of course he the, the neocons are you know present in both parties, and they're neocons first and foremost before they are Republicans or Democrats. Let's you know always remember that. So you know. The, 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 the reason they are so in such a strong position at the moment, in such a polar pole position, is because there is already a conflict in the Middle East, an armed conflict in the Middle East, in which the US is intimately involved, and that, of course, is the conflict in Gaza. And one gets the sense, you know, this is a difficult conflict to read because, again, we get very controlled information from each side. But one gets the sense again that this isn't going particularly well. Um, General Scott, the new chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States, he stopped over in Tokyo um, on Thursday. And he was interviewed there by reporters. And he said that what the Israelis are trying to do to destroy Hamas in Gaza is a very tall order. So he didn't seem to think that it would be an easy thing to do. From, in fact, my own impression, reading his words, is that he didn't think it was an achievable thing to do. And apparently, again, the Israelis are suffering losses, not huge losses, but real losses in both men and equipment. And I get the sense also that though they managed to you know, encircle Gaza City uh, by moving along the main roads, They've not really so far taken the battle to where Hamas is strongest in its own strongholds, which is, of course, in the urban areas. And meanwhile, the fighting there continues. Rather, the bombing has continued. But what we now see is that the political pressure to ease off is growing. And we now have these humanitarian pauses, which is supposed to happen every day. I mean, partly the intention is to try to get people out of northern Gaza into southern Gaza. It's not clear to what extent that is actually happening. But when there are humanitarian pauses, the pressure to extend them into a permanent ceasefire is inevitably going to grow. And there are reports of increasing dissension within the administration within the U.S. government, within the State Department, within even the White House. White House aides are unhappy. People within the Democratic Party are unhappy. They're looking at the situation in Michigan and other states like that where there's large Arab, Arab, uh, um, vote, Arab communities that you know, are key in, you know, in tightly fought elections. And you, you can sense that both Biden and Netanyahu are feeling the pressure because both of them 
have again had to come out and say that, you know, for the moment they're, they're opposing a ceasefire. Even though, as I said, the pressure is growing, on, is growing all the time. And can I just say, I mean, it's not just political pressure in Israel and in the United States and in the Middle East. It's political pressure in all the European countries. There is now a major political crisis which is just stirred up in Britain in which the Home Secretary, the person in charge of the uh, you know, police forces ultimately, is now in conflict. Uh, that's a, uh, a person called Suella Braverman, is now in conflict with the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. She wants to take a stronger line against uh, pro-Palestinian protesters than the Prime Minister is happy about. This calls upon her to resign. We've already discussed in a programme the uh, major conflict there is within the opposition Labour Party. It's now starting to break out within the Conservative Party also. And um, I'm sure that this is true right across Europe as well. I can understand why Netanyahu does not want to uh, call for a ceasefire. He, he, he has committed himself to, to annihilating Hamas. He understands that uh, if he calls a ceasefire, then uh, that might turn into, into uh, like if he calls a three-day ceasefire, that might turn into a longer ceasefire. And perhaps there may be some sort of, sort of off-ramp to, uh, to this war. And for Netanyahu, the, the person, the prime minister, Netanyahu, he faces all of these court cases. Um, it's already understood in Israel that uh, they're going to deal with Netanyahu when the war comes to a conclusion. I mean, that's already been stated. And so for Netanyahu, I can see the, the, the incentive for Netanyahu to avoid a ceasefire at all costs, his own personal incentives. And at the end of the day, we are dealing with people. Yes, people who, who, who are, who are uh, narcissists, who have huge egos, who are, some people could describe them as, as, uh, as uh, psychopaths or crazies. But at the end of the day, these are people with motivations. And so I can understand Netanyahu's motivation to avoid a ceasefire. I mean, if you, if you think about it, okay, he doesn't want a ceasefire for X, Y, and Z reasons. The Biden White House is a bit more, more interesting as to why they just don't say ceasefire. Biden hates Netanyahu. So for him, if he can engineer Netanyahu out, for him, it's, it's a win. Um, obviously, this is hurting his, uh, his 2024 election campaign. We had uh, CNN reporting that there's a cable that's making the rounds inside the Biden administration, which is saying that all of the, the Arab and the Muslim countries, they've told American diplomats that uh, this, this is going to damage the United States for a very, very long time amongst the, the Arab and, and the Muslim uh, uh, nations. So they're very, very upset. They're furious. And they even said that this is on Biden. I mean, they've singled out Biden. They said that Biden is the one that fails to call a ceasefire and he's the one that's, that's uh, supporting these war crimes. Uh, so, you know, you, you come to the question, I understand Netanyahu's personal motivations for avoiding a ceasefire, but it seems like the Biden White House has every single incentive, including Biden himself, personal incentives to order a ceasefire, to call for a ceasefire, to demand 
a ceasefire. Now, either the neocon, the hardcore neocon influence is so great that even Biden, who's a neocon, can't, uh, can't convince them to, to call the ceasefire. Or the, the other reason that I can think of is uh, they need to, to keep the fighting going to a certain extent at a certain level in order to get the, the war with Iran or a combination of both. The neocons want the wars to keep on going. They want Biden to, to not call a ceasefire in order to get to, to a war with Iran. I mean, I mean, I guess my question is, you know, what's, why, does, why doesn't the U.S., why don't the Democrats, why doesn't the DNC, Sullivan, all of these guys, why don't they say, look, if we're going to win 2024, we, we got to get to a ceasefire. We got to call a ceasefire. Well, I, 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 think there is, I think there is that realisation within the Democratic Party, and I think there is a sense of crisis about this. In fact, I've been reading today in the British media that, there's, you know, that there's, uh, the Biden White House is having to push back now and say that you know, Biden isn't actually going to step down. He's not minded. I mean, when, when a president has to start doing things like that, then you can, tell that, you can see that he's in serious political trouble. Um, now... How did they get into this mess? Because you're absolutely correct in what you said at the start. In the case of Netanyahu, he ought to have been a fully known quantity. Well, everybody knows, everybody around the world knows about Netanyahu's political problems in Israel. Everybody knows how those political problems were massively compounded by what happened on the 7th of October. Everybody also knows about Netanyahu's long-term stances on security in uh, Israel, Israelis, and his long-standing opposition to any move towards a Palestinian state. So this is something that the administration should have realised in advance. And yet what happened was that Biden went instead to Israel, embraced Netanyahu, who, as you absolutely correctly say, doesn't actually like him, and with whom he has had a history of bad relations, and gave Netanyahu a blank check, now, which Netanyahu, ever since, has been busy cashing, as he was bound to do. Now, that was, well, we said it at the time, that was a bizarre thing to do. I mean, it was an incredibly stupid thing to do. Even if you wanted a conflict with Iran, you should have allowed yourself some kind of exit strategy. And the administration didn't. It just closed off. The president didn't. It closed off its own exit strategy. It gave a complete blank check, a green light to Netanyahu in public, enabling him to do whatever he wanted to do in Gaza. And we see these comments from General Brown suggests that they are not going well. So why did it happen? And why, given the results, are they not turning it back? Well, I think one of the reasons it happened is because Biden himself, as you correctly say, is a neocon. He takes a very aggressive approach to all um, foreign policy issues. He's destroyed the relationship with Russia completely. He's created enormous tensions with China, and his immediate instinct when there was another conflict in the Middle East, a one in Gaza, was to take the neocon approach, 
to um, back Israel to the hilt and to send all this huge military force to the Middle East to take on Iran. Now, I think there is another factor as well, which is that I think that Biden is out of touch and sees both the world, the Middle East, Israel itself, and the United States very much in terms of what he knew about these places 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, support for, the United, support for Israel across the United States was pretty much universal. A political leader could not lose by backing Israel to the hilt. And I think that he wasn't prepared. He didn't understand that the mood, the ground within the United States itself has shifted and that, in fact, it might be politically damaging for him, electorally damaging for him, to do what he has done. He also underestimated the changes that have been happening in the Middle East as well. And I suspect, lastly, he probably overestimated the ability of the um, Israeli army to gain a rapid victory in Gaza. Because, again, he's thinking about the Middle East of 30, 40 years ago, when, of course, he was in the Senate and he was dealing with all of these people. He's still thinking in terms of those politics. But, of course, the one part of his strategy, his original strategy, which is still functional up to a certain point, is this possible war against Iran. He's got all of his military assets there. As you correctly say, in a kind of a sense now, assuming he does want or is thinking about a strike on Iran, keeping this conflict in Gaza festering at a certain level, as he might think, containing the political damage, as he might think. Not that he is doing that, by the way. But anyway, keeping it sort of on the burn until he's ready to launch a strike on Iran. Well, I don't know whether that is his strategy or his plan, but it is the temptation. And given that we're talking about Biden, who always goes in the end for the most kinetic option, has done so consistently, I can't say I have any confidence that he's going to resist that temptation. Yeah, I agree. He's he's not going to resist at all. And when we mean Biden, we don't necessarily mean Biden the the man. We mean Biden the the mechanisms behind <laughs> behind the man and around the man, running the man. Anyway, all right. Um, well, well, that that that, we'll that is yeah. true. That that is true. But as I said, to the extent that he himself retains any capacity for decision making yeah he always yeah. uses it to pursue yeah. confrontation that has been the consistent pattern since he became president in 2021 we saw that with the russians we've seen that with the chinese and we're seeing it now with the situation in the middle east no it's easy to to convince biden to to go to war to escalate i mean you, you, it's very, very simple uh, to, to whisper in his ear and, and move him in the direction of, uh, of conflict because that's, that's where he has always tended to, to position himself. So, yeah, 
All right, we'll yeah, I mean, uh, we'll end it there. That you had that we'll, local, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. No, no. I mean, just to say, a, a situation which actually is continuing to get more dangerous by the day, and you know, it may seem that things in Gaza are not quite as you know dramatic as they were in reality. If you look off stage, things are deteriorating, and they're deteriorating fast. All right, thedurand.locals.com. We are on Odyssey, Rumble, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter X. And go to the Durand shop. 20% use the code the Durand 20 Take care.